everybody and welcome to the five bites podcast i'm your host rory monahan the podcast as always is brought to you by my sponsors goliath technologies who help it pros be proactive and anticipate troubleshoot and prevent end user experience issues regardless of where it workloads or users are located and also by policy pack software where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Liquidware, providing enterprise-class management solutions for physical, virtual, or cloud-based Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. Starting this week's episode with some potentially big news from CNBC.com. They reported that Salesforce may acquire Slack as early as next week. The reports of the potential acquisition sent Slack's share price soaring with a gain of 38%. On the news, Salesforce's share price went the other way with a decrease of about 5%. CNBC speculates that the Slack acquisition could be very lucrative. It's said to be within the range of IBM's previous acquisition of Red Hat and Microsoft's acquisition of LinkedIn, which were worth $34 billion and $27 billion respectively. Not that my opinion is worth much when it comes to investments, but I think it's a good time for this type of acquisition for both Salesforce and Slack. Slack, because of the huge gains Microsoft Teams has made in the last year, and also for Salesforce, because Slack would instantly give them a huge market share, plus, They will have this world-class product to offer to its large customer base and one to continue developing integrations with within their own products too. So it seems like a win-win. It was another rough week for the cloud. There was a pretty big AWS outage on Wednesday that affected the North America region just before Thanksgiving, which is far from ideal. This outage is ongoing at the time I recorded the audio for this episode. And the status page shows the Kinesis Data Streams API is currently impaired in the US East One region. With suggestions, this API affects many different AWS services, with some on Twitter listing out AppStream, Workspace, Cognito, Dynamo, DB, AWS Signer, and a lot more affected. It will be interesting to see some analysis on how many customer sites were affected. I saw some tweets showing that Roku, Grubhub, Amazon Prime Music, Ancestry.com, OfferUp, Pokemon Go, and more were taken down by the issue. I know Disney Plus and some other streaming services also run on AWS, so I bet it's very widespread. Will it rank up there with the Cloudflare disruption a few months ago that took down much of the internet? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Speaking of cloud service outages, Outlook in Office 365 seems to be returning to the old 503 error for service unavailable intermittently. I'm not a web developer, but I guess that means someone is making live changes on servers without taking them out of load balancing first. Tweets suggest the issue is intermittent and has been happening for several weeks now. I guess at least with this issue, The service is quickly back up. It's just a bit of a nuisance or an annoyance when you try to 
hit the site and you get this 503 and you have to like keep refreshing until you get to a good server or a good site. If you patched with the Windows updates for November, you may want to sit down for this next story. Microsoft have released an out-of-band patch to address an issue with Kerberos authentication caused by the November patches. I found the information in the official Microsoft guidance pretty vague and confusing on this one. It appears it was only a problem if you were running Windows 10 20.04 and later, and also if you had some server 2019 domain controllers in use. But it also listed enterprise apps with no explanation as to what that meant. You know, not that many organizations would have 2019 domain controllers. A lot more organizations are probably a little behind on Windows 10 as well. So when you read this, you might think, well, this doesn't affect me. But then enterprise apps are also affected. That could affect everyone. BleepyComputer.com reports that the out-of-band patch that's been made available is indeed available for older server operating systems all the way back to server 2012. So that's before 2012 R2. Thanks to Julian Vallis, who in the World of UC Slack channel let us all know that his organization did indeed encounter issues with apps running on server 2016 that were caused by the November patches and resolved by removing the patch. So if you read the notes on this one and you thought you were safe, you better think again. And obviously, as always, make sure you test your patching. If you're using that ring methodology, make sure you're keeping an eye on your pilot group of servers or pilot group of desktops before committing to rolling it out enterprise-wide. So watch out for this one and consider that out-of-band patch. BleepingComputer.com has reported on an unpatched local privilege escalation vulnerability that's affecting Windows 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2. They state the vulnerability stems from a misconfiguration of two service registry keys. The permissions on the RPC Endpoint Mapper service under HKLM System Current Control Set Service can allow attackers to trick the service to load malicious DLLs. The service runs as a local system, so it has the potential to do some damage if manipulated. As of this recording, there is no patch available via the extended support updates. BleepingComputer.com recommends using a patch that's been made available via Zero Patches micro-patching service, which they say has made a patch for this particular vulnerability available for free. I haven't looked into the micro-patch, but assuming that it's likely just changing the permissions on those registry for the service. If you do have a lot of Windows 7 in your environment or Server 2008 R2, it's definitely one you don't want to sleep on because it's pretty severe on the severity scale. This week, DirtTeam.com reported on a couple of nasty vulnerabilities in VMware ESXi. The first vulnerability is a use after free vulnerability in the XHCI USB controller. They report that a malicious actor with local admin privileges on a virtual machine may exploit this issue to execute code as the virtual machine's VMX process running on the host. They state that this has got a 9.3 on the severity scale, so it's a doozy. There is a workaround available for this vulnerability, and that is to just remove that USB controller. 
Unfortunately, in the second vulnerability, there is no known workaround right now, and that one is a VMX elevation of privilege vulnerability. And this vulnerability is within the way certain system calls are being managed. A malicious actor with privileges within the VMX process may escalate their privileges on the, effect, on the affected system. It's said that successful exploitation of this issue is only possible when changed with another vulnerability, which is listed as CVE-2020-404 as an example. I guess because of that dependency, the criticality of this one or the severity is a 8.8, so it's a little bit lower than the first vulnerability. Rather scary is the fact that these vulnerabilities could leave domain controllers that are running on a compromised host exposed. Because obviously if you're able to leverage the VMX process and get local admin privileges and there's a domain controller running on there, I mean, you can go hog wild and do whatever you want to. Because of the severity of these vulnerabilities, you'll want to patch as soon as possible. There are patches available right now for 7.0 versions of ESXi, 6.7 and 6.5. I would call out the numbers or names of the patches, but they're kind of long and monotonous and it doesn't make for good listening. But I'll share a link to this article if you want to get which patches you need to install. And I'll share that with this episode, which is episode 152. And you'll find that on fivebytespodcast.com under reference links again for episode 152. Citrix have unveiled a preview of their web-based studio console in Citrix Cloud. There's no word in this article with the announcement if this is something that they will also bring to on-premises customers. With the way they've been incentivizing customers to get to a subscription-based license, I guess they won't be in a hurry, but that's not based on anything that's been said to me. It's just a feeling that I have. I hope they do bring it on-prem though. I'm tired of dealing with the junky MMC snapping console. This new one actually looks pretty slick too. It looks like it's very responsive. If you wanna see it in action for yourself, you can check out the YouTube edition of this episode, which you'll find at 5bytespodcast.com with episode 152 just click on the link under the YouTube column Manchester United one of the largest sports franchises in the world have potentially been hit by a ransomware attack the club state they have informed the information commissioner's office in the UK and that forensic tracing is being carried out in a bid to establish further details about the attack By their own account, they detected the breach quickly and shut down the affected systems, which should have contained the spread. As a result, the systems required in their stadium, Old Trafford, remains operational, so matches will not be affected. They also state they believe supporters' personal information has not been compromised. Manchester United's media channels, the website, and the official app have been unaffected by the attack. On the surface, it sounds like they were well prepared and said that this is an event they have been rehearsing for, so kudos to the security team. So I think we're all aware of the issues with some suspect imposter extensions in Google Chrome, or even legitimate extensions doing some shady things in the past. Like for example, the Postman imposter extension that was discovered by ExtraHop a couple of years ago. And also the Hola plugin 
that appeared to be doing some crypto mining in the background. Well, some watchful Edge users have reported seeing URLs redirecting to OKSearch.com and some other nefarious looking links. One of the extensions people on Reddit pointed out was TunnelBearer, and they've made a statement that an extension available in both Edge and Chrome are indeed fakes. So their legitimate extension is being spoofed. Other potential fake are spoofed extensions currently in Microsoft Edge, according to researchers via that Reddit post, include NordVPN, AdGuard VPN, TunnelBear, who I just mentioned, the Great Suspender, and also an extension called Floating Player, a picture-in-picture mode. With AdGuard and NordVPN, they've acknowledged attempts to fake their extensions, and they are investigating. Ars Technica recommends removing these extensions if you do notice them redirecting to suspect URLs like OKSearch. Unfortunately, spoofing legit extensions is becoming a real problem. Amazon have announced a new service called Amazon Sidewalk that appears to be a mesh network they are creating with Amazon Echo devices. I debated whether I'd cover this one because I'd like to keep things focused on enterprise IT. I know that they've been trying to sell some of these devices to enterprise organizations, but they don't really have much of a foothold in enterprise IT. But the concept of this mesh network is something that very well could be seen in enterprise IT eventually at least. So Amazon state that Amazon Sidewalk is a new long-term effort to greatly extend the working range of low bandwidth, low power, smart lights, sensors, and other low cost devices that customers install at the edge of their home network. They say using the 900 megahertz spectrum, they're developing a new protocol that can increase the connection range of devices by more than one half mile or one kilometer. With Sidewalk, customers will be able to place smart devices anywhere on their property and know they'll work great, even in dead spots where Wi-Fi or Bluetooth don't reach. The idea of a mesh network of yours and your neighbor's Amazon Echoes sounds like a pretty scary thing. Some have brought up the idea of Skynet, and it reminded me of an excellent keynote speech given by Chris Matthews at the very first EUC Masters Retreat in Prescott, Arizona. He talked about his creation of a large peer-to-peer -peer mesh network and the possibility of decentralizing the web and how such a thing could revolutionize the interwebs. It would allow people who live rural to simply grab the bits they want to download from their neighbor's devices rather than needing to traverse the web. It's awesome and powerful in theory, but whether or not Amazon are the company you want to trust for this is another question. Just personally, the Amazon Echoes already creeped me out enough without the idea of my Echo device joining a massive peer-to-peer -peer mesh network with other neighbors' Echo devices. You can see the power behind it, but whether you trust that or not, it's just going to be a personal choice. TechRepublic.com published their Linux desktop distros best of 2020. Now it's all just opinion based, but it's a fun read nonetheless. It features Fedora 33, MX Linux, Manjaro, and Pop OS. 
Fedora was actually one of the first Linux distributions that I used, and I thought that the layout and the UI was slicker than Windows and OS X at the time. But also at the time, installing and managing applications on it was too big of a pain for me to commit to using it as my daily desktop operating system. Pop OS seems to be very popular. I have yet to try it, and I would like to. Hopefully in 2021 I'll have the time. Not on the list, but one I liked last year, giving my own opinion, was Elementary OS. That's pretty clean and snappy to use too. If you've got some recommendations on good distros, please reach out to me on Twitter, at Rory Mon, with your recommendations. It looks like Citrix WEM has got a least privilege manager feature allowing you to have end users assigned at a minimum level of privilege. And then Citrix WEM admins can elevate that privilege to enable users to get specific tasks done. As it's new, it looks a little lacking compared to some other more mature products that are available with these types of features. But as I've said before, this type of thing is good for customers. It helps to keep driving innovation and choice is a good thing. Version 2.6.0 of Nerdio's WVD Manager has been released. There is a big list in the release notes of what's been updated and added to the product. But I'd just like to mention a couple, and you can check out the rest for yourself. But they list a feature to deallocate stopped VMs. So they say hosts shut down from inside Windows are in a stopped but not deallocated state and are generating Azure compute costs. Nerdio Manager can automatically detect VMs in this state and deallocate them proactively. So that's one of those stealth costs. It's not really stealth, but it's something that a lot of people don't consider is yeah, when you're power managing your VMs and making sure they're off when people aren't using them, that's cool because it's keeping your cost down, but you're still incurring a cost by just having those VMs powered off and left within your resource groups. It's best to deallocate those VMs to save some money. I actually have a blog post on a topic like this covering something called SciCloud on my website, rorymon.com, where I get into this a little bit and you can check that out for yourself. But one of the other cool features that's been added to Nerdio's WVD Manager is the apply host pool changes without re-imaging. So you can make changes to FSLogix, Sapego, user session time limits, and app attach settings to live hosts without the need to re-image. And that kind of thing is going to be key to the success of managing a non-persistent desktop in the cloud. It's really key to managing one on-prem too. That's why I like products like AppBentix and Numescent cloud paging, where you don't put anything really into the image other than an agent that you maintain when you're going through your regular patching cycle and have the apps come into the desktop on startup or on demand. I'm still doing a bit of research on Adventix and I hope to share more on that on my site in the new year. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Software 2 has a pretty cool and clever bit of marketing this week. They showed off their awesome Apps Anywhere product running on the brand new PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X consoles. You could do this too if you like. Of course, maybe running it on your laptop or desktop makes more sense. And I strongly recommend you check out Apps Anywhere. I really love it. They do contextual application delivery a very different way. Quite frankly, I think they do it in a way that it should be done. A lot of the large EUC vendors who are in this workspaces business now could learn a thing or two from them. 
Now, to me, contextual app-based delivery shouldn't just be context from a security perspective. It should be about delivering the application the best way for end user experience on the type of device they're using plus other criteria. So if you haven't checked out Software 2 apps anywhere before, you should definitely check that out. I don't know if I've covered it in a blog post. I think I covered it a little bit in a blog post that I put on Alga's technology website in their blogs, but I think I also covered it in the MVP Days online webinar that I did last year. And some awesome news if you use OneDrive. It looks like there's going to be a new policy available soon that allows you to exclude syncing of certain file types by wildcards. So for example, you can exclude all .lnk shortcut files if you like. You'll be able to also exclude files with certain names too, not just file types. I think the next logical step for this type of feature will be a combination. So like the ability to exclude all .lnk files just from the desktop folder. That would be very cool. Finally, in the news this week, if you'd like to become a VMware vExpert in 2021, please apply today to be in with a shout. Applications closed on January 9th. It's a fun program to be in. It's been a bad year for me in terms of being engaged with the program. And I saw my buddy Sean O'Mahony posted a poll on Twitter asking people how their 2020 was in EUC in terms of work demand. And work's been kicking my ass all year, but I'm hopeful that I'll be able to be more engaged next year. That is if I'm lucky enough to be renewed. So see you in the group if you happen to join. And now a weekly webinar. On December 2nd at 10 a.m. Eastern, Tim Bogdan and Kevin who are the authors of the great new MSIX Fundamentals book that I mentioned on last week's episode, are going to be doing a webinar on MSIX. So if you've been reading the book, you'll be able to ask any questions that you might have. It feels like we're on the cusp of MSIX becoming a more mature product and one worth considering for your enterprise application deployments in the future. So it's a good idea to join this session to ask any questions you might have. And also, you should check out Tim Mangan's session from E2EVC that was held last week. The sessions are now already available on E2EVC.com. And now this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. There's a great website called IsAppleSiliconReady.com with a list of popular applications showing if the apps have been optimized to take advantage of the new M1 chips. Not surprisingly, most apps listed are not yet optimized, but good news is the latest Citrix Workspace app is, so yay. They have an option for you to add an application so the list can grow. Thank you to Stefan Peters for sharing this one. Samuel Legrand shared a really interesting blog post this week which appears to be part one in a multi-part series of blog posts. He had a customer who was having significant performance issues with CPU going pretty crazy. Sam says he spent some time trying to figure it out and enlisted the help of community legend Remco Wynan. Together they discovered winword.exe. That's right, Microsoft's Word was making several WMI calls on launch. I won't give away the entire contents of the article and what he found, or what they found rather, 
But the methodology used for troubleshooting was particularly interesting to me. If you want to learn about troubleshooting these types of application performance issues, and in particular WMI troubleshooting, you want to check out this blog post. And of course, like everything on the podcast, I will share a link with that article in this episode. Thanks to Thorsten for these next two. I feel like I'm constantly sharing some of his tips on this podcast, so thank you very much for the content. But there's a handy little shortcut for ending the Windows Explorer process. In Windows 8 and Windows 10, you can hold Control-Shift while right-clicking any empty area of the taskbar. Then on a modified context menu, you could just click the Exit Explorer command too. So pretty cool. He also gave a tip on how to track access denied events with Procmon. So there's a command you can use and also some keyboard shortcuts to get the job done. And I'll share that with this episode. So personally, I'll also add that I'm a creature of habit. So while yeah, definitely you can use filters within Procmon itself. And I do do that to um, filter out the junk before recreating the problem. I still tend to export my Procmon traces into CSV and then just add filters to the top columns and filter it through Excel rather than through the console. But, you know, there's several different ways to skin that cat and whatever works for you is obviously what you should use. But it's interesting to see other ways of doing things too. Sammy Lejo has a quick, easy post on how to use Procmon remotely. So if you're an experienced IT admin, you're probably already doing this. If you're still early in your career, this is one you'll definitely want to know. And I guess you could be doing it different ways as well, depending on some of the tooling that might be available to you. So it's still worth checking out to see what Sammy recommends. Sammy also spoke at the recent PolicyPack lockdown event and talked about AppLocker, which is becoming a really hot topic, which is funny because it's well over a decade after it was added as a feature. Well, with it being a hot topic, it's definitely a good time to check out Sam's blog post on AppLocker best practices. Thanks to Trevor Ty for this next one, he pointed out a really basic YouTube video that demos how to use OneDrive and Word that comes with your Microsoft account. So this is a tutorial that goes over how to upload a file and edit and save within the web version of Word. So this is a tutorial that goes over how to upload and edit and save with the web version of Word. If you have a getting started page for your users who are maybe working remotely, this is a video that you'll want to embed. I know that with OneDrive integration and the save options within Word, it's something that actually comes up a lot with our remote desktop users. And it might come up for you too, or if you're only just integrating OneDrive now, it's going to come up, so it's a good one to hold on to. My buddy Shane Kleiner, tweeted a tip that if you're doing UDP audio through Citrix Gateway or traffic traversing a firewall and you're on Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops 1912CU1, he recommends that you move to 1912CU2. Shane says he ran into an issue that's actually listed in the release notes for CU2 as being fixed with a keep alive timeout problem. He said he's been using a private fix for some time, but now that private fix is rolled into CU2. And finally, Andreas Nick has continued to add to his blog post on delivering the new edge with AppV. 
He's managed to get around some issues and get the IE mode within the browser working while sequenced. So really great stuff. Before I sign off, because most of the listeners of the podcast are based in the U.S., I would like to wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. After living there for many years, I know that you guys work very hard and you get very few days off. So make the most of the days off that you do have. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening.